begin this evening with a word of prayer. Father, we come into your holy presence tonight grateful for the many good things you have done for us and mindful that because of our sins we have deserved none of this from your hand. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you've adopted us into your family, and that you take care of us day by day, not only in our physical needs, but above all in our spiritual needs, and in that you have saved us from our sins, that your own Son, your precious Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, gave his life in our behalf and has given his Spirit to us to enlighten our minds and to open them to the truths of the Scriptures, to the riches that are found there. Help us to be nourished by the Scriptures tonight as we study them. Help us to understand them properly and to apply them obediently in our lives. We pray, Father, that we would stand in respect of your word. We'd be willing to believe everything that you have said, that we might treat it reverently and interpret it properly. We ask, Father, that your word would become a light unto our feet, that we would walk in a proper way, indeed that we would walk in paths of righteousness before you. Now we thank you for the fellowship of God's people as it is centered around your word, and above all, centered on our Savior, Jesus Christ, the living word, in whose name we pray. Amen. We are this evening in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, and I'm going to open by reading that chapter in its entirety. We began a couple of weeks ago to study Hebrews 9, and I'm going to do a little bit of review tonight, obviously with some uh, new individuals sitting here. You might like to catch up with where we are in Hebrews 9, and then we'll continue on from where we left off. But first, let's read the chapter together, beginning at verse 1. The author of this epistle says, Now even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and its sanctuary, a sanctuary of this world. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the first, wherein were the candlestand and the table and the showbread, which is called the holy place. And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was a golden pot holding the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and above it cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of which things we cannot now speak in detail. Now these things, having been thus prepared, the priests go in continually into the first tabernacle accomplishing the services. But into the second, the high priest alone, once in the year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit, thus signifying that the way into the holy place had not yet been made manifest while the first tabernacle was yet standing, which is a figure for the time present, according to which are offered both gifts and sacrifices that cannot, as touching the conscience, make the worshiper perfect, being only with meats and drinks and diverse baptisms, carnal ordinances imposed until a time of reformation. But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, nor yet through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling them that have been defiled, sanctify unto the cleanness of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of a new covenant, that a death having taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they that have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death made in it. For a covenant is not, excuse me, for a covenant is of force when there has been death, but it does never avail while life continues. Wherefore, even the first covenant was not dedicated without blood. When every covenant, excuse me, when every commandment had been spoken by Moses and to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet, scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded to youward. Moreover, the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry he sprinkled in like manner with the blood. And according to the law, I may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. It was necessary, therefore, that the copies of the things in the heavens should be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands, like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place year by year, with blood not his own. Else must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once... At the end of the ages has he been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time apart from sin to them that wait for him unto salvation. And thus far the reading of God's word. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, may contain as much theology densely compacted into any one chapter of the Bible uh, than, that you will ever find, apart from maybe Romans, the fifth chapter, or uh, something like that. This is just an incredible chapter. It's going to take me a long time to expound it, and I'm not going to make any apologies for that. We're going to spend some time in Hebrews 9. Let's review what we've done so far, though. The author of Hebrews comes to this chapter, and having said that the New Covenant... Uh, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah already should have indicated to the people that the old covenant was nigh unto passing away, was near unto um, uh, being transpired. He says, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in its sanctuary, but a sanctuary of this world. And then he goes into a detailed description of the sanctuary of this world. He speaks of the first covenant tent, the sanctuary or the holy place where the religious ritual of the Old Testament centered. The earthly creation, the tabernacle of the earthly creation involved, uh, and if I had a 
blackboard, perhaps I draw a picture for you, involved uh, a setup of the temple according to God's instructions. Think of it as a rectangular box divided into two-thirds and one-third. The two-thirds represents the holy place. And then the second third of it represents the holy of holies, which in Hebrew expression means what? Anyone? Holy of holies, another translation? The most holy place, or the holiest of all, in the same way that um, king of kings means the highest king. Song of songs means the best song. So the holy of holies is the very holiest place. What made the holy of holies the holiest place of all? Okay, the Ark of the Covenant, that comes close to being the correct answer. But what made the Ark of the Covenant so special? That's right, the Shekinah glory above the mercy seat. And the Shekinah glory, the manifestation of God's glory, the presence of God in the midst of his people. Why is it important that it was above the mercy seat? Why couldn't it have been just anywhere? God dwells in the midst of his people on the basis of what? I'm sorry? His grace and his mercy. The mercy seat. What made the mercy seat merciful? Exactly. Blood had to be sprinkled on it. Remember we talked about the mercy seat was a thick slab of gold. Very heavy. So that if you saw the movie... Um, Help me. Raiders of the Lost Ark, thanks. Uh, and you saw how they struggled, uh, allegedly, they have the Ark of the Covenant, of course it's not true, but they struggled to get the lid up, and that would have been very accurate. That lid was a very heavy thing. But it was solid gold, but it had blood on it all the time, you know, because the only reason the high priest went before the Ark of the Covenant, and only that once a year, was that he might sprinkle the blood there, the blood of the covenant. Okay. We also talked about the setup, the straight line, what I call the line of propitiation in the temple diagram. If you go outside the holy place and you go to the brazen altar, what was done at the brazen altar? What kind of rituals performed there? Anybody? What's that? No, no, no. Cleansing was at the labor. What was sacrificed upon the altar? No, brazen has to do with the bronze material that made it. What kind of sacrifice was made there? Sin offerings, exactly. And then those burnt offerings would be taken, the blood from them would be taken on a straight line till you got to the veil of the Holy of Holies. And what stood right before the veil of the Holy of Holies? What piece of temple furniture or tabernacle furniture? Doug? That's right, another altar, now the altar of incense. And the altar of incense represents what? The prayers of the saints. And this is, of course, the beautiful imagery of Revelation. That the incense goes up before God, and it is the prayers of the saints. And so on the basis of sacrifice, the priest can come and offer the prayers of the saints before God, and then he enters into the very presence of God, the Shekinah glory, and there, God on the mercy seat, his throne of justice and love, he sprinkles the blood. Okay, tell me more about this. Let's go back to the holy place. What else is in the holy place? 
Paula, what else is in the holy place? Okay, since you've reviewed that part of the lesson, we'll talk about the curtain. There, there are two curtains. One, that you enter the holy place. That's the first one. And then a second curtain that shields the holy place from the holiest place. And would you please tell me what was embroidered upon the curtain of that? Cherubim. Cherubim. Why? Right. Where do we get the idea of the cherubim guarding the presence of God? That's right. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, God set cherubim at the gate of the garden with a flaming sword, indicating what? You dare not return to the presence of God. You dare not return to the tree of life. There is imagery and revelation of uh, an angelic host that are the host of God's presence in Revelation. However, it's um, in Revelation in that passage, they appear to be a combination of cherubim and seraphim. Um, we could go to Revelation and talk about that sometime and what I want to make of that theologically, but the, the, the description in Revelation is a combination of cherubim in the Old Testament including Ezekiel's cherubim, which are somewhat different, and the seraphim of Isaiah. The features seem to have been combined. But the importance of cherubim in terms of imagery is that they keep the sinful man from approaching God's holy presence. And so the cherubim, you see, are right there on the curtain. And the high priest goes in there only once so that he might come before the presence of God as the representative of the people. But the book of Hebrews says... He never went in without what? Without blood. Without blood, and but more particularly, he had to go twice, didn't he? First of all, he had to go in and take care of what problem? His own sin. And then he could go and qualify to represent the people. Did our Lord Jesus Christ have to go twice before the presence of God? Now, you go through this chapter and see how often. Once for all. Once for all. This he did but once. Because, you see, only Jesus could offer the perfect sacrifice. Only Jesus could perfectly do what the high priest had been called upon to do all along. Well, let's go back to the holy place and see if we can fill out the furniture of the holy place. By the way, what mistake is made in Hebrews, the ninth chapter? A mistake in the Bible? Vicki? That's right. According to this, the altar of incense is placed where? In the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies. But we know that's not correct. We know it from the Old Testament. We know it from intertestamental Jewish literature. We know it from Josephus. So what do we do? I guess there goes the inerrancy of the Bible. Is this an error? How did we handle that in our last Bible study? I see I made my point um, real clearly. <laughs> so it's a common way of speaking about, about it. Exactly. It turns out that Jewish literature also associated it with the holiest place, and the people who did that knew very well that it wasn't in the holiest, the holiest place. Why is it associated with the holiest place? I'm sorry? Well, first of all, because it's the last step before you go into the holy place, and so it's transitional. And then from a theological standpoint, 
Remember the altar of incense is the prayers of the saints going up before what? The presence of God, which is the holy holies itself. And so there's a theological reason for the author putting it this way, and it was apparently uh, an idiom that the Jews would have recognized in their day. So we don't have a historical error here. Uh, Bob? Okay. Verse 3 speaks of the Holy of Holies, and then 4 says having a golden altar of incense. But the golden altar of incense was in the holy place, um, technically. Actually, right in the transition between the two. What else is in the holy place? I'm never going to get my question answered. Help me. What? A candle stand. How many candles on it? Not ten, seven. Go back to the book of Revelation. You notice that Jesus stands in the midst of the sevenfold candle stand. Okay. And that imagery, again, is taken from the Old Testament. The light of the world. What else is in the holy place? We talked about the altar of incense. We talked about the seven. Okay. That's right. The table of showbread. You notice how Pastor Curto uses the Old English. Does anyone know what showbread means? What in Hebrew does it mean? How could you translate it? Marilyn, do you remember? Mine says presence. The display of loaves. Or if you technically it says the loaves of the face. Meaning the loaves of presentation. Or, as Tony put it, the show bread. Actually, the bread for show. The bread of presentation, the bread of the face, what is put forward. What does the showbread represent, you figure? Tony? Well, okay. Uh, I'm not so sure about the manna part since that is in a pot in the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant. But before we can get to Christ, the bread of life, why are there, well, how many loaves of showbread? That's right. Six loaves, two rows of six, representing the tribes of Israel or representing the people of God. Jesus, of course, is the Son of God. He represents the people of God as well. But the people of God are to nourish the world. We take the bread of life to the world. We won't get into all the imagery that's involved here. We need to move on. What else do we find? Well, the holy place has been taken care of. What do we find in the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. We've mentioned the mercy seat, the slab of gold. What is above the Ark sitting on the mercy seat? Cherubim again. Right. And their wings come up. They face in toward the glory of God, and their wings cover it. Someone tell me quickly, just um, by way of review, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? It didn't end up in the movie. That, that's wrong. It got carried to heaven by angels. Okay, one view is that, that the angels carried it away to heaven. What else? Bob? I remember you saying years, a number of years ago that it was, that it was destroyed in a conquest. 
Well, we know it disappeared in 587 at the time Solomon's temple was destroyed, but then there are a lot of views of what happened to it. One is that it was taken up to heaven by the angels. What else? Jeremiah hid it in a cave, apparently, and uh, people have looked for it often. What did the Samaritans do with it, according to legend? Buried it next to the grave of Moses, waiting for the advent of the Messiah spoken of in Deuteronomy, the greater one than Moses. Only Christians know where the Ark of the Covenant is. And the Bible tells us right where it is. Tells us what we should think of the Ark of the Covenant in the earthly tabernacle. And where did I find my answer, Pat? In the heart. No, not yet. In the church? No. Do I get another chance? <laughs> nope. You get three strikes and one Bible study, you're out. <laughs> Annabelle? In heaven. How do you know that? That's yeah, right. That's but but we know that it's irrelevant. What what happened to the earthly ark is irrelevant because in the book of Revelation, John sees heaven opened. And remember what he says immediately? And the ark of the covenant. No longer do we look for what Jeremiah hid or so forth. And we, it's not even a question of angels carrying it up there. It's a different ark altogether. What he sees, of course, is the very throne room of God. Okay. I think the last thing I went into uh, in our previous Bible study came from verse 5 where the author says, of which things we, kinda, we cannot now speak in detail. And I drew a conclusion from that that's very important in terms of Bible interpretation. Not every detail needs to be interpreted or given a special meaning for us to get the point of the biblical author. And I warned you against the kind of Bible interpretation that's uh, coming out of uh, Tyler, Texas these days. And not just there, I mean other places too, that, that tend to uh, try to embellish all the biblical passages with, with deep and detailed and complicated and interrelated and interwoven interpretations which you could not really, from a literary standpoint, justify passage by passage and point by point. We are told, well, it's not appreciating the Word of God if we don't look at the literary architecture here and, and, and dwell on every one of these details. But you notice the inspired author said, I don't need to do that. I don't need to speak of all these things in detail here. Because I don't want you to miss the point. Yes, Bob? He doesn't just say he doesn't need to, it says he can't. He says, well, yes, and he says apparently that I can, he can accomplish his task without doing that. So symbolical interpretations of the tabernacle details that so often run amok should be something we watch out for. And we should, in interpreting the Bible, I would recommend that we recognize and observe the same reserve as the inspired author himself did. John Calvin, speculating beyond reasonable bounds, as some do, is not only futile, but also dangerous. Okay, let's move on to verse 6. Now, these things having been thus prepared, with the tabernacle laid out just the way he's been speaking of, with the furniture of the tabernacle in place and so forth. Now, these things having been thus prepared, let's talk about the ritual that takes place there, he says. The priests go in continually into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the services. 
Remember that that Holy of Holies is used only once a year on the Day of Atonement. The ritual of Old Testament worship, I wonder if you've ever thought about this, the ritual of Old Testament worship was predominantly 364 days a year, predominantly outside of the presence of God. Not in terms of the intimate, merciful presence of God that we enjoy today. Every day of our lives, we go inside the veil, according to the author of Hebrews, with Jesus. We have an anchor of the soul inside the veil. Every day of our lives, our worship is like that. Only one day in Jewish worship was like that. All the other religious worship was at a distance from God. All the other religious worship, even for those who could approach the tabernacle, and not everyone could, was confined to the holy place. What kind of ritual was, um, was observed in the Old Testament? Well, the priests went in day by day. This was their regular work, and they had things to do there in the holy place. Three things in particular. I'd like you to turn to 1 Chronicles 23, verses 24 to 32, as a convenient summary. If you don't want to look at the summary, then turn to the book of Leviticus and read all of it. Uh, we can't wait for you to do that tonight. But, yes, First Chronicles 23, verses 24 to 32. These were the sons of Levi after their father's houses, even the heads of the father's houses of those of them that were counted in the number of names by their poles who did the work for the service of the house of Jehovah from 20 years old and upward. For David said, Jehovah, the God of Israel, has given rest unto his people, and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. And also the Levites shall no more have need to carry the tabernacle and all the vessels of it for the service thereof. For by the last words of David, the son of Levi were numbered from 20 years old and upward. For their office was to wait on the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of Jehovah in the courts and in the chambers and in the purifying of all holy things, even the work of the service of the house of God, for the showbread also, and for the fine flour for a meal offering, whether of unleavened wafers or of that which is baked in the pan or that which is soaked and for all manner of measure and size, and to stand every morning to thank and praise Jehovah, and likewise at evening, and to offer all burnt offerings unto Jehovah on the Sabbath, on the new moons, and on the set feast, in number according to the ordinance concerning them continually before Jehovah, and that they should keep the charge of the tent of meeting and the charge of the holy place and the charge of the sons of Aaron their brothers for the service of the house of Jehovah. These priests would go in and they would tend the lamps twice a day, morning and evening. They would make sure that the lamps of the seven golden stand were kept burning without interruption. Secondly, they burned incense upon the altar morning and evening. They added incense twice a day, representing the prayers of the saints. And on a weekly basis, every Sabbath, they replaced the showbread. The 12 loaves were removed, 12 new ones were put in their place. Okay, verse 7 of Hebrews 9 continues. Having described the service which was daily in the outer tabernacle, our tent, he now takes us most intimately to the very Holy of Holies. But into the second, the high priest alone, once in the year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the errors 
of the people. In contrast to the daily routine of Jewish worship, there was a service performed only once a year and only by the high priest, and that in the second sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. What was the date of the Day of Atonement? Anybody remember their Old Testament? That's a mean question. That's the sort of thing you give to a seminary graduate and see what he does on his ordination exams, right? <laughs> 710. Seventh month, tenth day. Okay? Probably some significance to those numbers, seven month and the tenth day, but the fact is that was the day of atonement. And the author reminds us the, uh, that the priest could not go in without blood. He'd had no inherent right to enter on the basis of his own holiness. He needed atonement just as the people that he represented needed atonement. And in this way, God dramatically indicated to his people that the way into his presence was closed to them apart from the blood of sacrifice. God said, if you wish to come to me, you can only come by blood. Christianity is often ridiculed for being a bloodthirsty religion. Not only bloodthirsty because we see the wars, the holy wars of the Old Testament, but above all, it is considered offensive to modern enlightened men that God would require blood before we come into his presence. Now, of course, blood has bad connotations for us, I mean, unless you're in the medical field, you know. I think about blood in my heart surgery, and it's kind of, it's academic in a sense, kind of technical. But usually the word blood denotes something not very pleasant to us. In fact, in English idiom, in British idiom, you know, the word blood is used as a, as a way of swearing. You know, if someone's called a bloody so-and-so, that's a real bad way to speak of that person. So we have this connotation of blood as being something unpleasant. Christianity is a bloody religion. God says right here, there's no way into my presence apart from blood. Now, why is that? I mean, how can we answer the world that says that's so, uh, so primitive, that's so aesthetically displeasing, that's so... Well, I wouldn't want a God that's bloodthirsty. Gail, what would you say? Exactly. Please do not divorce the thought of blood from death. In a sense, we would do very well to think of the reference to blood here as bloodshed, not just blood. It's not like God is to be portrayed as some kind of divine vampire that wants blood per se. That's not what God is demanding. What God is demanding is not the physical liquid in our veins. He's demanding the shedding of our blood, which is just an idiom for what? Death. Okay, so when people bring up the bloodthirstiness of God, say, you really have misread the Bible, what that means is God demands death for sin. And then I would, if you're doing some evangelistic work, I'd suggest that's really what bothers you, is that you know you're... Sin deserves death. It's not that God has done something that you think is really kind of primitive or displeasing to your aesthetic sensibilities. It's that you know that you stand condemned before God and you'd rather go window shopping to find a God more to your liking. You'd rather find a God who doesn't have such high standards. You'd rather have a God that isn't as holy as this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. 
Okay, again, the ritual on the Day of Atonement, the high priest offers a bull as a sin offering for himself on the brazen altar, carries some of the blood into the holiest place, sprinkles it on the mercy seat. Then he goes out and he kills one of a pair of goats as a sin offering for the people. He, re he repeats the ceremony with the blood taken in. He comes back out. And now you help me. What does he do with that second goat when he comes back out? Joe? The light hands on the head of the goat is pronounced the sins upon the goat send it out of the wilderness. That's right. What sins does he pronounce with his hands upon the head of the goat? Someone? The sins of the people, all the sins of the people. We're not talking about just a Roman Catholic confessional where someone's in there for 15 or 20 minutes. We're talking about a long rehearsal of a year's sins of these people as he is trying to hold on to this goat. Heads of the goat. And then the goat, what do they do with the goat? Chase it out into the wilderness. The scapegoat. As an indication of what? That the sins have been borne away from the presence of God and remembered no more. Isn't that beautiful? God gave pictures to his people in the Old Testament of theological truths that he directly speaks to us. But the picture is that I will remember your sins no more. They are lost in the wilderness, as it were. God does better than we do in that regard. Because I remember my sins. And uh, I have days... Uh, I don't say this to make you sympathize with me, believe me, but I have days where I just weep over what a wretched sinner I can be and how so many times I ask God to forgive me and I do the same things again. And things that you would think should not be even possible for a believer. And you say, and, so, and we torment ourselves. But you know, it's not just us. Satan torments us too. In the Bible, Satan is called the accuser of the brothers. Satan needles us and he comes to us and he brings these things to our mind. And he says, what kind of person are you? How can you call yourself a Christian? In my case, how could you be a pastor? On and on and on. He needles us. He accuses us. Remember the scapegoat. Out into the wilderness. God doesn't see and remember these sins anymore. And I mustn't either. When they're being brought up, they are not being brought up to me by God. They're being brought up to me by Satan. The scapegoat, beautiful imagery, led away into the wilderness. And um, I want to comment here in verse 7 as well that he offers for himself this blood, according to verse 7, and for the ignorances of the people. I think I told you that last time real quickly. Your translation will probably say errors of the people. The word literally is ignorances in Greek. Those sins committed inadvertently and in ignorance, which matches the thought of Hebrews 5, verse 2. Who can bear gently with the ignorant and erring, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. Sins of ignorance. We have a notion of ignorance in our conception of law today, which doesn't match up with this at all, but many people put the two together. We say ignorance of the law excuses you. Actually, we usually hear it, ignorance is no excuse, but that's not followed out often. We think, well, I, I just didn't know. Quite often, 
I'll have people come to me in counseling and I'll turn to something in the Bible, some detailed enactment of God or statute, they'll say, well, I never knew that. Now, as a pastor, should I say, well, that's okay then. If you didn't know, I'm sure God's not upset with you. Mm -mm. God says you in your heart of hearts know these things. Romans 1, Romans 2, tell us that. And ignorance is no excuse. So don't get me wrong. When I speak of sins as ignorances, I'm not excusing them. However, the Bible does distinguish between sins that arise from our human frailty and sins which arise from our malice. There comes a time in the life of certain individuals when they know very clearly that they are offending God and what they say is, what I want to do above all is offend God and so I will do this sin. In the Old Testament that was called sinning with a high hand, with a fist toward God saying, I'll do this just to show you I'm not going to submit. A Christian cannot sin with a high hand. For such sin, there is no forgiveness. If you want to do a study of the unforgivable sin in the New Testament, I suggest you study the sin of the high hand in the Old Testament. Because you will read there that no sacrifice was possible for such sins. Deliberate sins and rebellious defiance against God and His authority. These are irremedial. Turn to Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. I know it's a chilling passage, isn't it? And it's one which, sadly, even many Reformed commentators tone down. It isn't to be toned down. It's to be taken very seriously. When we know that we are in the wrong, and when we are not just because of our uh, our frailty and our habitual disobedience doing things that bring us down and make us sad. But when we say, I want to sin, I know it's wrong, and it's the very wrongness of it that entices me, the Bible says no longer is there a sacrifice for that. You have committed the unpardonable sin of apostasying from the faith. Well, I can't talk about the unforgivable sin without calming some consciences because I'll bet you there's some of you out there who are saying, Pastor, could that be me? Could I have done that? My guess is uh, because I see how Tony's looking at me here, he's probably said the same thing. You know, if you're concerned about that, no, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin because you were not sinning with a high hand that says it's just because it's sinful that I want to do it. You find yourself upset over your sin. Now, between sins of ignorance, which we are interpreting as sins that are not maliciously done for their sinful character per se, and that defiant, malicious, defiant rejection of God, you're worried about how close you are over here to how close you are to these over here. And what probably throws you is that by calling them sins of ignorance, you're saying, well, I'm not unaware that what I did was wrong. And so it wasn't really a sin of ignorance. In that sense, the two categories can mislead those in 20th century English-speaking countries. If you have sins of ignorance and then defiant sins of the high hand, and we think of ignorance as simply being totally unaware in a cognitive sense, 
of what we are doing, then we're worried that this wasn't totally ignorant, so maybe it is a sin of the high hand. And so let's get away from this notion of ignorance being simply cognitive. These are sins of my frailty and my sinful nature. You know, Paul spoke of struggling, didn't he, with sin? In what chapter do we read of this, especially in the Pauline epistles? Exactly, where Paul comes to the place at the end of Romans, and it is not Paul's pre-conversion experience he's talking about. I think that line of interpretation is both cheap and mistaken. Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Praise be to God that what? Turn to the end of chapter 7 of Romans. Blessing to read that. Paul's one of my favorites. I have no doubt that he's a Christian. Paul struggled with sin. He knew. In fact, he says in the same chapter that the law of God told him what was wrong in himself, and he struggled with that all the more. The law came in and even increased his sinfulness because he wanted to do the things that were wrong. Who shall deliver me? Out of the body of this death, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I have myself with the mind to serve the law of God, with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation. Yes, Romans the 8th chapter is a beautiful chapter. You know, it's the golden text of the Bible. That's fine. But you can't understand Romans 8 if you don't first understand Romans 7. Because it leads right into it. No condemnation. Wretched man that I am. There's no condemnation. Paul recognized in his own sinful nature that desire to sin. He wasn't ignorant in the cognitive sense, but he was very frail and um, weak, less than glorified. So let's remember that sins of ignorance, we're not referring to an academic matter. We're talking about our lack of sanctification, the weakness of our own flesh. Yes, Dick? In trying to follow your reasoning about Uh, let me first address the premise, if I've heard it right, of your question, and that is that, um, well, I'm not even sure if I have it right. The only people who can commit the unpardonable sin are unbelievers. That's what I am saying. But those who profess to be believers will show themselves to, in fact, be unbelievers when they commit the unpardonable sin. It is not possible for a true Christian a born-again son of God, to commit the unpardonable sin. But, okay, but then is it not in the heart of all unbelievers because the true basis of their rebellion yeah. is hatred? Thank you. That, that is the premise that I wanted to come back to. No, not all sins, even of unbelievers, are sins with the high hand. The sin with the high hand is a very particular, um, very intense matter of saying, I know full well 
that this is what God wants, and it's just because God wants it that I'm not going to do it. So that presupposes a certain amount of enlightenment. As Hebrews 6 says, you know, there's a certain experience of the powers of the age to come. Uh, those who were Pharisees, who knew enough of the Word of God, had come close enough to be able to discern these things. Jesus says, when you accuse me of doing these things by Satan, you're sinning with a high hand. You know very well that's not true. And it's because you so despise me, the Son of God, that you blaspheme the Spirit of God, and that will not be forgiven. And so, um, and, and I could put it this way to be graphic about it, you might think of the unbeliever who's in some uncivilized land that's never heard a missionary. I would say probably we wouldn't think of such people ever committing a sin with a high hand because the sin with a high hand presupposes a certain amount of enlightenment and privilege that is then sinned against when you say, yeah, I know Jehovah and I know what he wants and I'm going to show that I'm not going along with the program. Bob? What about the fact that the Bible says that, that uh, heaven is the glory of God? Well, they do. Oh, I'm not saying that anyone is without enlightenment. I'm saying that the amount of enlightenment must be more than just general revelation in order to commit a sin with a high hand. Another question that Dick asked too was, uh, is there any sin that's not forgiven? Didn't you ask that, Dick? Is there any sin that can't be forgiven? Yeah, there is one sin that cannot be forgiven. The unforgivable right. one. The rejection. <laughs> okay. That's right. Every other sin can be forgiven. And of course, no, no Christian, I mean no convert, will have con committed the unforgivable sin for that very reason. Go ahead. No, I, um, I think it's good of you to think about that connection, but technically I wouldn't say they are the same thing. There is a giving of approval to a sinful lifestyle that is uh, a wretched and increased form of rebellion, but even that is not sinning with the high hand in the technical sense of the Hebrew expression. Because here you have pagan Romans who not only uh, perhaps commit homosexual deeds, but they give approval to homosexuality. But again, the sin of the high hand is saying, God, you want this? I know it's you speaking. I'm not going to do it just because I hate you. So an unbeliever can have a knowledge of God. Well, sure. They all have a knowledge of God, as Paul said. I mean, excuse me. That's, <laughs> that's not too unflattering. <laughs> Bob Pegram here says that uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. He got it from Paul. He <laughs> got it from David. We got a person from God himself. We know from the Bible that everyone has a knowledge of God from Revelation, and then there's a knowledge of God historically through God's people, and so forth. But in order to commit the sin of the high hand, I'm saying you need to know more than just general revelation. Every unbeliever is guilty because he knows better for what he's doing. But not every unbeliever is in a position of saying, I'm so defiant against the God that I know clearly that I'm going to blaspheme his name or blaspheme his spirit. Am I answering your question, Brian? Yeah, I forgot Tony's teaching that 
Okay, Dick, and then we're going to move on. I was just going to comment that I think it's probably very hard to relate to. I mean, I know for me it's very hard to relate to because, you know, um, it's hard to imagine someone who could commit that and have that mindset. Oh, exactly. You know, it should be something that believers cannot sympathize with. I don't mean in the emotional sense, but that we could say, and see, I feel that way, to be very honest with you. I wrote a book on homosexuality, researched more gutter material than I'd ever want to know. And the thing that made it hard for me to write on homosexuality is that, frankly, I am so far from ever having that. I, I can't imagine a man wanting sex with another man. I mean, I'm going to, what is it, what's going through? And it's just not there. I mean, there's just no communication. Now, I understand an argument that's gone wrong. In, you know, a, I can understand how this guy went premise, premise, and made a fallacious conclusion. I cannot understand the feelings of a homosexual. I'll be honest about that. I hope I can counsel them in the right and Christian way, but in the same way, I as a Christian look at the sinning with a high hand and I say, I cannot imagine someone saying, yes, Jehovah, I know you're there, I know it's clear, I know what you want, and it's just because you want it that I won't do it. Because day by day, I'm humbled by the fact that I don't want to break God's laws and I find myself doing it. So it's just, we're in different worlds. Doesn't the Bible say that? We have different mindsets. So sinning with a high hand is always a conscious thing. Oh, yes. I think that's a provocative way of putting it, but I agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the person who sincerely professes atheism cannot sin with a high hand. Sin with a high hand, another way of putting it is sin with a high hand is apostasy. Ellery. How about the human family model? Uh, the rebellious child, at a particular moment, is really defiant. He's really doing this because he knows that the parent uh, want, does not want him. Uh, and yet he gets forgiven by his earthly parent. Uh, what's wrong with, with this model? Let's, nothing's wrong with the model, but in order to understand the difference between what you've spoken of by way of analogy and what the sinning with the high hand is, we would have to add to your model something corresponding to the child saying, I know my father doesn't want this and that's why I'm doing it, but it is of such, um, I'm looking for the metaphor I want, it's like set in concrete. It's so um, once and for all, there's no going back on it. Uh, it. I would say what you've described is what we call in counseling circles the forbidden fruit syndrome. There are people who do things that are enticed by sin because of its sinfulness. You know, Augustine confessed to that. In, in, in his confessions, he talked about how he stole pears, and he didn't even particularly like the pears. He stole them because of it was exciting to do something wrong. And that's what you're describing. In our human families, we as children, or our children, if we are parents, have that. They sometimes break the rule because they want to break the rule. Uh, and that's in human nature. All we have to do is post a sign out here, please don't break the church windows. And I'll tell you, we'll come next week and the church windows will be broken. Isn't that right? There's something about human nature that sees in the, in the prohibition, I want, to go, I want to transgress it. But I'm talking about something more than that. I'm talking about something that is so dyed uh, uh, indelibly that there's no going back. It's when the person says, 
Not just, yeah, I'm enticed by the excitement of sin. It's a person who says, it's just because it offends God and I hate God that I'm going to do this. Antoinette. Yep. She would be an atheist, but I would say of her that she's not a sincere atheist. Someone says, now wait a minute, Dr. Bronson, how do you distinguish between sincere and insincere atheist? The effectiveness of their self-deception. If you'd like to know more about self-deception, <laughs> I have a long doctoral dissertation that you can read into. But I think that sometimes um, there are people who are who claim to be atheists, who know very well, even within themselves, on, on a more surface level, I'm playing a game. Okay. I think this set of high hand might be uh, best depicted by, um, in the movie, The Bible, where they build the Tower of Babel, and Nimrod climbs to the top of it, and he stands on the top, and he shakes his fist, and he says, I'll get you. Yes, that's right. You want to see a sin with the high hand? Read the autobiography of Jean-Paul Sartre. Words. I mean, I could, I could go on and on about the significance of how words is the description of his life. He's a writer. Sartre says, literally, he says, the day came when I collared the Holy Spirit in the basement and I threw him out. He said, I no longer wanted the divine gaze into my life, intruding into my life. Well... You know, from a human standpoint, we never know a person's heart completely, but as best I could say humanly, I'd say he sinned with the high hand. He knew it was the Holy Spirit, and he said, I want nothing to do with you. And so he said he dropped the prophetic mantle, and now his words became existentialist, absurdist, in a universe with no meaning. And that is the, the courage of Jean-Paul Sartre's life. He threw God out, and he became his own little God. It seems like Satan himself is the, the model. I very much wanted to get to the eighth verse tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and we have made a promise that we will not shortchange the prayer meeting and just turn this into an all-night study session. Um, although I hope that I've whet your appetite enough that you'll go on and study and next week we'll pick up with verse 8 and there's a lot of really good things. I want you especially as homework to reflect on the significance of verse 9 that says which is a figure for the present time where the word figure means parable which is a parable of the present age and um, the beautiful significance of that not only for the nature of um, the New Covenant Age, but also for the way God has worked in the history of redemption, which is a parable for the present age. Okay, I'm going to conclude the Bible study portion of our evening activities, and we're going to take a two-minute break for a breather, and we'll uh, then sit back down, and Joe, I'll have you lead us in prayer.